My friend Mark asked me this morning if I had ever chaired a meeting in front of 1,500 people. I thought about it a minute. No, I don't think I have, but maybe I've chaired 100 meetings in front of 15 people so it all bounces out. (laughs) Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting our speaker last night and chatted with him a while, and I'm sure he's got a good message for us, so we're going to move right along and get to our speaker, John V. from South Berlin, Massachusetts. Good morning. I said to my wife, Kathy, let's go. Probably nobody will show up anyway. It's too early in the morning. <laughs> I, I consider myself to be fortunate, to be lucky. You know, we are trained in AA to look back and to see what it used to be like and what happened and what it's like today. What is like today for me is good. I would have never dreamed or believed that if I should stay sober that one day somebody would call me up all the way from Lexington, Kentucky. <laughs> I didn't even know that a part of the country was in existence. <laughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm one of those skid row bums. I arrived here when I was about 28 years old, that's many moons ago, from a mission. By that time, I had been in skits for eight years and uh, couldn't read and write, covered with wine sores and dirty, <laughs> never been married and never owned a car. and. I was thinking about that last night when I was listening to a speaker. First man I met in AA, of all people, the first man I met in AA was a lawyer. He was sober 13 years, and in Central Group in Syracuse, New York, every Friday night, he would stood at the door and he would shake hands to everyone who came to that meeting. And of course, I, I arrived in AA with a, a man who came to see me in a mission, another Indian friend. He told me that you had coffee and donuts and they were free. <laughs> Instead, I met this man and he, he grabbed my hand with his two hands and he said that he was glad to see me. And I didn't. I sat down and... Uh, My first speaker in AA was Lady Judge, and she wanted me to identify. And she screwed my mind, because I met judges before. Uh, One judge told me one time that I faced him 43 times, and he never once asked me to try to identify. All I want to do is get my donut and get the hell out of there. 
but there was this lawyer, you know, of all people, a lawyer. It's interesting, you know, when you look back one day with so much training that you get in the program, you can see things straight. You can understand things. That's what makes people like me grateful. You know, I realize I've been a bum for a long time. And you know, when you look the way I do, you don't meet no one put his arms around you and he said he's glad to see you even people in AA don't do that I suppose it takes uh, St. Francis in our 11th step talks about a, uh, he said something that I've always liked Lord he says I pray that I may understand rather than to be understood and he understood you know, I can tell you a lot of goodies this morning, and simply because there was once a man who understood that I was lost. I didn't belong to people like this. I had wine stores, I had long hair, I was dirty, couldn't read and write. And I'm in the mission, supposed to pay 35 cents a night, and I'm behind three weeks' rent. <laughs> you know, I have financial problems. So I got my coffee and donuts, and I was getting the hell out of there, and uh, he stopped me. He says to me that uh, before you leave, how about meeting some of my friends? And thank God he didn't say that he was a lawyer, or that he was sober 13 years. Because what I think touched me was the, the people in AA, the spirit of AA. I have always felt that the spirit of AA is something very special for most of us. It seems that he tells everybody that you're okay. And uh, it gives you that very strong feeling that you belong here. And after a while you express that feeling very strongly. Not only that you belong here, but you you really uh, work hard to belong here. Now, I have never belonged anywhere. You know, I left home when I was 14 years old. My father drank too much. He died early. And uh, five years later, after he died, eight members of my family died. All my family died with TB. I had twin brothers died in one year. And my mother died when I was 13 with TB. Of course, those days were, uh, were difficult for me. I, I developed uh, a lot of fears. I somehow uh, developed uh, an imaginary attitude that my people treated me like if I was dying too. And of course, uh, and, and it was very real. And, and of course, I, uh, I, my mind didn't change until many years later, as I was attending a recovery program, when I have learned to know myself a little bit, then I realized that uh, 
most of my life uh, I seek rejection and I found it in my own home and uh, it wasn't that my people didn't want me I, I believe uh, uh, it has been a part of my sickness that has never allowed me to belong in life and uh, so I, I, I lived in an old empty house in, in a reservation with a dog after my mother died and I couldn't sleep because I'm also a person who suffers from an obsession <laughs> I become I can become obsessed overnight forever and uh, my obsession was that I was dying and I had all kinds of pains and all kinds of fears and and every day people look at me like if I was dying and I discovered something that stayed with me for many years when I was 13 years old I discovered that if I could pretend hard enough that I'm somebody somewhere else uh, I could find enough peace to fall asleep it, it really never meant anything to me until many years later when I understood something about life I realize now that uh, to escape is comfortable but escape also denies you from who you are we are told in our recovery nobody grows by escaping from himself the recovery is in faith faith in my judgment is not comfortable it is too often asked me to do something that I have found it's very difficult to do but I have learned that faith is the only thing that allows this Indian to go from where he is with what he has in life <laughs> so while maybe it is not comfortable too often I would head in that direction because I want to get well but I knew nothing about escape nor faith at the age of 13 it worked so I've used it I left home when I was 14 because I wasn't wanted at home my people worked in lumber camps in Maine I arrived in Patton Maine one day and I, I asked if I could uh, get a job in lumber camp but I was too young and they didn't hire people who were too young the Second World War took most the younger people and they needed a dishwasher 20 miles in the woods place called a CC camp and the fellow said if you wish to walk that far it's up to you so I did and uh, I arrived in lumber camp and I met a man by the name of Bill Langster who was in charge and I was with him for four years washing dishes in lumber camp when I was 18 years old I left uh, he suggested that I should be with the younger people so I went to Quebec City to join the Canadian infantry where I spent three years and a half washing more damn dishes <laughs> my real problem started in, in, in Canadian Army if I had I known 
that they would give me a job washing dishes, I would have never joined. Because I've never really been a patriotic person. As sick as I was then, I knew that this country was ours before it was yours. <laughs> I was hoping maybe I can win a medal without getting hurt. Because I'm a very sensitive person. I can get hurt very easily and I don't suffer well. I say my problem started there because I, well, washing dishes told me one thing that I couldn't live with, I had trouble living with, it told me that I wasn't as good as the next person. And I didn't realize that, you know, you learn so much in AA about yourself, about the program. A person who don't believe in anything will seek approval from his fellow man. He wants his fellow man to give him something to make him feel that he is something. And that is a very lonely way and very painful way of trying to live. I, I like to, I like people to like me. And I like, certainly like to say something that, uh, that wouldn't make me feel stupid. But there has to be something more in life than what people can give me. And, and this is something that I have never had. I, I have never had anything to stand on. And yet, I liked, I admired courage. I, I have always did. I, I remember the first time I seen a picture of John Wayne. <laughs> I loved John Wayne. I, I, I never particularly cared the way he killed Indians. But, but, but you know, somewhere in the picture, he would do something because he believes it. And sometimes it would be dangerous. But that's the beautiful thing, I think, about us human beings. You know that someday we, we'll, we stand on something that makes one individual is something in life. God made us that way. I have always want other people to give me something that I learn much later in life that I have right to choose. But it is so scary and I'm so afraid and I'm nothing and nobody cares but I in the army I I had a terrible time for three years and a half because I told lies and I am basically especially when I was young I never particularly liked to tell lies but it became like everything else in life became very easy I didn't uh, but I also would avoid it. I wouldn't go out with girls when I was in the army, and, and I was old enough to know I should. <laughs> no, I'm sick, not stupid. Uh, and uh, I was glad when I got my discharge. I was 21 years old, and I was with a friend. 
we, we bought a suit, we got all dressed up. We, we went to a place called a Blurry Cafe in Montreal. And uh, it was in the third floor. A nice cafe. It, it, as you walk in, uh, they had a, a four-piece orchestra. And in front, there was a girl singing, practically, with no clothes on. And I think that's where I received my first spiritual experience. <laughs> and then I took a drink. I love to drink. You know, I look back many times, and drink was made for me. And I don't know why I loved to get drunk so much, whether it was because of the effect, you know, you hear that many times in AA, or because I was so happy to get away from the reality that I never was comfortable with, or maybe because that when I drank, I could do things that I've always wanted to do. I don't know why, but I do know that once I took a drink, I liked it, and I liked everybody around me. I, someone said last night about change, boy, do I change when I drank. You know, I could care less where you find out I washed dishes forever. I never even, I don't ever remember being sensitive that I was an Indian, or I had no education, or that I didn't talk with English. The thought never entered in my mind when I drank. You know, I get that wonderful feeling that not only did I belong there, but boy, you say something about me and you'll find out. <laughs> that brought me more trouble. You know, I could, you know, how many times you people in AA said you can dance better? Well, you don't dance better. It's like uh, falling in love every night, the best looking girl in the world. But she is not the best looking girl in the world because, you know, alcohol affects your vision. I thought so too until I woke up the next morning. I looked at her and I, I said, holy Christ. You know. But I think the beautiful thing about it, you take a drink again and you fall in love all over again. <laughs> and that kind of craziness I love. You know, too bad I could never do it sober. You know. You know, I was, I was speaking an anniversary with Eleanor, <laughs> lady, and I have no, 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 no one say anything wrong with Eleanor, lady. But this lady, she keeps saying about four times that she never woke up with strange men. I thought for a while she was complaining. <laughs> because I drank to wake up with strange women. I mean, if I could have done it sober, I wouldn't drink. Not only I drank to walk up with strange women, I was glad I did. I like about drinking. I can talk to anybody that I never could do when I'm sober. I love fights. Every once in a while I get that feeling when I drank that I could lick anyone. And that's a very dangerous feeling for me. <laughs> I had a, I had a, a, a bar, bartender named uh, Smitty. They named a bar after him. Well, Smitty used to work in our area because in Syracuse, New York, we had our areas. 
New York Indians drink in one area, and our, I'm a Mi'kmaq Indian from Canada, so we had our area. And we do that because we don't communicate too well. And every once in a while, about 20 of us Mi'kmaqs would get drunk, and we'd go to Smithies, where all the New York Indians drink. <laughs> and we would communicate. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's where I lost my four teeth. But sometimes I feel like I could lick anyone. Then I would go to Smithies. And I would wait for an Indian to come in. Then I would stare at him. <laughs> and if you don't stare back at me, I'll go and tell him, you know, I don't like you. And he would say, look, I don't want any trouble. I said, it's too damn bad. Because you're going to get it anyway. And then we start a fight and they call the cops. And that's when the fun starts. Because that's when I can show everybody who they're dealing with. And it was fun because these were the days when I was drinking socially. <laughs> and when they get to know me, they would send three, four of them. And they would arrest me. And next morning, I'm in the court, and this policeman brought his pants with him. One leg was missing. And he, he held his pants up, and judge was laughing, because it was funny, so I laughed too. And people in the court, everybody was laughing. And the judge said, well, John, he calls me John. You know, when you meet the judge 43 times, he calls you John. He said, what's the problem? I said, I have nothing against him. I, I, all I did is try to put him down, but he's so fat, his pants came first. And, and, and judge was hysterical. So was the people and myself until he gave me six months. <laughs> then I stopped laughing. But these were the days when I had fun in drinking. And I'm sure if I could continue on, because you see, living in skits for me was home, you know. I never, when I said this morning, and Kathy and I, you know, we, my wife and I, we've been on vacation since last Thursday. We took 21, 24 days. We're on our way to Florida tomorrow. <laughs> you know, we live like a white man, dollar down. When I, said, when I said this morning that I've never dreamed to be a place like this, we know this is really a, a class. We have a, a nice, nice uh, king-sized bed. <laughs> we went out and had lunch last night. All you have to do is sign your name. I mean, this is life. Well, I never expect this. I never dreamed that I never wanted or thought that I was going to live like this. It never entered in my mind. I belonged in Skids. It was my home. My problem started in Skids when alcohol no longer allowed me to do the things that I was enjoy doing. No more falling in love every night. No more fighting with cops. You know. No more dancing and 
you know, you drink and, and alcohol, that's nothing. So I wanted to stop long before I arrived here. I really tried. The only way I knew how to stop was to uh, take a pledge. The bums and used to say it to me, John, you look sick, why don't you take a pledge? And you know when a bum tells you you look sick, you're sick. But pledge is uh, it's something that you, you promise. You know, and if you can't keep your promise, well, you know, it's just another way of telling you that you're different. There's something wrong with you. Pledge never worked for me, you understand why. Tom in a mission, God knows Tom like bums, you know. I, anytime I needed the bed, I would attend the services, and, and if I attend the services, he would give me a free bed. As a matter of fact, one night, I was sitting there when a fellow got up and he said that for many years he was a bum just like us and he said one night in this mission I accepted Christ as my personal savior and since then he said I, I got married, he bought a new station wagon, he bought a home and he works nights and, and then he says any of you bums can do the same thing. All you have to do is move forward. Well, I've always wanted a station wagon and and nice girl, and nice clothes. I never cared to work, whether it was nights or days. <laughs> but it sounded so simple, I moved forward. And I knew nothing about Christ. I used to listen to lumberjacks talking about him. And you know, and by the time they finished with him, you wouldn't believe me either. And, but I moved forward, and this guy kneeled down next to me, and he said I was saved until the next morning when I met the judge. And he told me that the Fayette Park in Syracuse was for the decent people to go there on Sundays, and I agree with him because that's the way I felt about myself. But when I was invited to come here, when I was in a mission that night when this guy came to see me, you know, I once met him before in Tupper Lake, New York. He brought me home. He was married then with a nurse and had a nice home, but he lost everything and he wound up in Salvation Army and, and he got sober in AA and some bum says to him, you know, you got one of your brothers in a mission and he looks like he could use help. So he walked in one night and he asked me to come here. And that's uh, almost 29 years ago. And I came here and I was touched, I'm sure. Maybe because, I don't know, we stay in AA, we're ready. And perhaps that's true. But the thing that is important to me was that something happened to me that told me that I should come back. Because you see, I, I needed to come back. I needed to learn what I have learned here. First of all, you know, I'm not a bad person. You know, I'm, but I am a guilt-ridden person. I have lived with guilt long before I know what to do to be guilty. You know, I swear, when I was born, uh, doctor hold me up by my two feet and he said, look, you little bastard. When he spanked me on my ass, you're going to be guilty all your life and don't you ever forget it. <laughs> and I never forgotten it. 
the message came true, loud and clear. But a guilt is an emotion that cripples. Too often you make decisions based on guilt. And I think when we were born, when God gave us a right to choose, we didn't give us right to choose through guilt. And guilty people are those who cannot get away from themselves. I like what St. Francis said, for it is in self-forgetting that you find. Christ, I, I never could go away long enough away from myself to learn anything. But I came back and I learned. Last night the speaker was talking about being powerless. Not because you're bad. Or because you don't believe or because you're not wealthy or not well educated I understood what it meant and as the years has gone by I've learned more about powerlessness and I've earned that when I first came to AA you know but in, in my days there, there was no uh, step meetings and every meeting in Syracuse they would read the steps and fifth chapter, how it works, and traditions, and later on you learn to memorize them. But they didn't mean too much to me. I met my sponsor here, Pat. Pat, Pat is someone I never liked. He was a bum longer than I am. I knew Pat. He, he, he had a degree. Do you know there is nothing worse than a bum with a degree? They never let you forget it. But I met Pat in Central Group, all dressed up. He had a girl, and he comes to me, and he said, John, I'm your sponsor. And he says, uh, I, have a, I have a new car. And every, every night he would pick me up in a mission. Sometimes he would bring me a sandwich. He used to say he can only eat half of it. One day someone said to me, because I've always talked about it as the years gone by, a few years ago someone said to me, do you ever stop and think that Pat never eats sandwiches? <laughs> it's amazing how you learn things. 29 years later, I'm here in this beautiful place. Still cannot read and write too well never improved my English language. I tried, but... And yet I'm free. I'm still an Indian. <laughs> and yet not only that I'm free, but last night I understand the speaker. I knew what he was talking about. You know? But you know... I'm free because there have been some people in my life who took time. Some special people in my life, and I suppose we all have them. One of them was Pat. You know, Pat would stop the car and bought a sandwich. And when you do that to someone in a mission, you don't look, you don't look for attention because they can't give you. You're not looking something from someone, especially when he's a bum in a mission. 
but you are giving something. They say that's the greatest gift that you can give is yourself. And I am old enough and wise enough in AA to realize it was true. Especially in those days when I'm not the easy person to help. Uh, I'm also a perfectionist. I didn't know I was perfectionist. You know, I mean, if you see me laying in the sidewalk with long hair, wine sores, and dirty, would you stop and say, now, this man is a perfectionist. <laughs> I mean, you're not that smart either. But when Pat was late, about 15 minutes late to pick me up, and he's always late, I wouldn't go with him. The hell with you, if you can't come to pick me up on time, you can drop that. I'll walk. I'll show him. Pull along with me, you know, 20 below zero, I'm walking a mile to show Pat that he's a damn stupid. Can't come on time. All he wanted me is to leave the mission. He said I couldn't stay sober and live with those bums and I wouldn't leave. But one night, mission burned down. Three o'clock in the morning, I knocked at the door and I said to Pat, mission burned down. And he said, that's the grace of God. <laughs> <laughs> and they brought me to, uh, next morning, to a 12-step house. And I worked there for a year. It paid me uh, seven dollars and a half a week and I lived there. My job was to wash floors, wax them, to answer the telephone, make coffee, and wash dishes. But I get thrown out of there. Some girl, her name was Han, I never met her, but I remember she was drunk and she needed help. There were these AA people playing cards every night and I told them that someone needed help, and when they find out who she was, they told me that uh, she's been around for years, and that's all she does is use people in AA. But I know it was wrong. But I, I never knew what to do when I'm right. The way that I've lived all my life, that if you hurt me, then you give me a right to hurt you back. You know, in AA, you learn about understanding, and uh, the 10 step talks about, about restraint, uh, 11 step talks about walk on what you believe in, don't let other people control you with their ideas, with their emotions. You don't have to be perfect, but you can be effective just the way you are. You learn all these things much later. But when you're growing in AA, it's very, very difficult to deal with facts sometimes. Now, I knew they were wrong. And when I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an AA person. I'll, I'll fight for AA. <laughs> I did, too. <laughs> I upset the table while they were playing cards. And one of them I didn't like. I punched him right in his mouth. And I knocked him down right on his ass, and that was my first 12-step talk. I, 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 I could start my own group, but they throw me out. And three o'clock in the morning, Pat picked me up, and he brought me to his home. 
and next day he brought me to Major Harvey in Salvation Army, where I stayed about three years. Went to meetings every night, and I had this little card telling me I can come home at 11 o'clock. But I, I got lost in here in AA because I, there were no step meetings. And you know, in my 50 years sobriety, I was in skates. And uh, I was uncomfortable. I left Syracuse. I walked out of there. And three o'clock one morning, I walked into Marlboro, Mass. In my fifth year sobriety, and I slept in the men's room in a hotel. And there I met Paul, who owned the restaurant. He says to me, John, they're starting a new meeting in Worcester Monday night. Would you like to come? And I said, sure. I've always loved AA. And I walked into my first uh, step meeting about 24 years ago, where I met a fellow, a good friend today, uh, Father Fred. Father Fred was sober a couple of years then, Eddie D. Sober 40 years now, he's a newspaper reporter, great AA. Fellow by the name of Dr. John, Irene, the radio had a radio show, and there were a lot of these big heads, big brains. <laughs> there were a lot of people there, but these are the people I, I kind of looked up to. And I walked into my first meeting, and what they did over there was read these pages. First time I've heard that they would read seven, eight pages in the first step, and, and after they finished, people from different walks of life would express their ideas and their insights as to what this means to them. And, and you know, I, 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 you didn't mean nothing to me. I suppose if you ask me a question that night and say, John, now you're sober five years, what would you really like to have? Well, I would probably say, well, I, I would like to have a nice home and uh, a lot of money. I mean, a lot of it. <laughs> and beautiful girl. I mean, beautiful girl, not just any girl. A lot of nice clothes, and a big job, and a new car, and I would feel better. <laughs> there is a good chance that in those five years, I sat next to people who had all these things. Nice wives at home. Nice children, money, some of them, new car. But you see, they felt the same thing inside, and that's something I couldn't separate. I didn't understand my sickness. I didn't know. I certainly didn't believe that night that I needed the program of recovery. I didn't believe that. I, I needed to come back. And, and thank God I've always loved AA. I came back. And Paul, who owned the restaurant, says to me one day, John, uh, Rita, Rita, she's a waitress, works with Paul. She said, she wants someone to paint her house. Could you paint a house? Because I was sleeping in a men's room <laughs> in the hotel. <laughs> I needed a little help, you know. So I, I, I went over and I gave her an estimate of $300 and she gave me a job because other contractors wanted twelve dollars to 
And then I said to Paul, I got a job, but I don't have any money. And he says, go back and ask Frida. She might give you some money. And she did. She gave me $100. That's how I started. I, I figured if I'm going to be a president in my own company, I should buy a white coverall, <laughs> bought some paint. And Saturday night, I went to meeting, and I met a man who worked in a telephone company, and he loaned me a ladder and he delivered it. I finished his job and I owed Paul $65 worth of groceries. Then I met a plumber in AA. said, John, I have a ranch house about seven miles from here. All you need is a little stepladder. So I borrowed that and I got all my drop cloths together and I stood in the corner and I stopped the bus. Uh, this guy looks at my ladder and he looks at me and he says, you can't be serious. I said, I am, I'm self-employed. You know, he, he wasn't all that well put together himself. He says to me, if I give you a ride, would you promise you'll never do it again? <laughs> My next job was school teacher. She taught school 40 years and she retired. I asked her one day, because I've learned that there were 69 questions if you wish to have a driving license. I asked her if she could help me to memorize them. She said, I have taught thousands of people. And three months later, or a couple of months later, I knew the questions inside out. And when I, when I, when I went to take my test, I knew I would pass. This guy, he brought me to this little room and he only asked me two questions. I mean, I'm sitting there and, and he said, that's all. And I was insulted. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to leave. I got all this education and you think anybody cares? <laughs> Nobody gives a damn. My, my, my poor sponsor, Pat, no wonder he suffered so much. <laughs> with his degree. <laughs> Paul, who owned the restaurant, came to see me with an 11th passenger station wagon, one of those black ones. For $750, he said, it's yours, and I had no money, but I borrowed 250 where I was working. And uh, a girl in Marlboro Group, she co-signed for me. So here I was in my 50 years sobriety, I was president in my own company, and I had a driving license and 11 passenger station wagon. So I decided to find me a girlfriend. But I had these four teeth missing, I told you. And I figured you couldn't find a type of a girl that I wanted with four teeth missing. So I started looking for a dentist in AA. Someone told me there's a new dentist in AA. So I went over to see him, and I cornered him one night, and I said to him, I'm looking for help. He said, what's the problem? I said, well, I'm looking for a girlfriend, but I have this four teeth missing. So he gave me his card, and two months later, I have this new set of teeth. <laughs> then I met a girl in AA. She run a home of non-alcoholic women they call Fate House. She says to me, John, I'm told you have a car. 
I said, 11 passengers. <laughs> she said, I have nine girls. I'm, I'm looking for someone to bring these girls to a meeting. Would you like the job? I said, I'll be happy to. And that's where I met Kathy, my wife. On our way back that night, I said to her, would you like to go out on date? And she said, no. <laughs> I mean, she didn't even think. person who seeks rejection don't miss that at all. <laughs> and on my way home I said to myself, who in the hell she thinks she is? Here she is with those girls, none of them have anything. And here I am, I'm president in my own company. I have a new set of teeth. And I ride around with 11 passenger station wagon. Who the hell wants them anyway? So Thursday night, we picked the girls again, or I picked the girls again, and on our way back, I said to her, would you like to go to show in Boston? And she said, yes, and we did. And on our way back, I asked her to marry me. She said, I don't even know you. Said, it's all right, we still have five miles to go, we'll get acquainted. <laughs> so three months later, we got married. Nobody showed up, and we had $85. So we went on our honeymoon, and we came back with $35. And we moved into a three-room apartment, paid, I think, $11.50 or $13 a week. And Kathy and I walked in there, neither one of us had anything. You know, no radio, no clothes, no furniture, no bed, no blankets, nothing. <laughs> we had a coffee table that was given to us from where she was in the Faith House. But even newlyweds couldn't sleep in coffee tables, so... <laughs> So we slept on the floor, but, but, but you know, you can have fun on the floor too. <laughs> I spoke in Westchester County one day and I mentioned that, you know, and there's rich people out there. After the meeting, this rich lady came to me and she said, young man, I don't know how much fun you can have on the floor, she said, but I know you can have a lot of fun in the oriental rug. <laughs> I said, thank God you identified. <laughs> but while we're laying on the floor I said to Kathy you know I would like to have a boy because I'm the only one left so this Christmas my wife was in a hospital waiting for a boy calls me up three o'clock in the morning or something she said, honey, it's a girl. And I was disappointed. I always do when I don't get things my way. That's, that's, that's why I always had problem with God. He has his own ways and he has my ways. But next Christmas came along and my wife was in there again. Called me up, she's still crying said, honey, it's a girl. But you know they say experience is a great teacher. 
I said to her, don't worry about it, just have an open mind and we'll try again. <laughs> I've learned that in AA. Next Christmas came along. My wife called me up and she's still crying. This time it's twin boys. So you know what I say, if you work hard enough, God will give you what you want. <laughs> Two years later, Rita came along, and a couple of years later, Bill. So my wife and I have six children, and they're all grown up. We got a, the old two girls are married. We're expecting both be this week sometimes, our second oldest daughter, our first grandchild. We've got two girls married, the oldest daughter is in the program, and we have two kids in college. One of the twins is in Germany now, going to some kind of university up there. He, he talks, he's learning languages, he talks like four languages. We have a youngest daughter, Rita, she's in the university, and one of the twins works for me. I have finally, as the years gone by, got my license as a general contractor. It took me 15 years, <laughs> and uh, one of my twins works for me, and we have uh, another boy, 17 years old, and all our kids are doing great. And I thank that for my wife, who stayed home, and being an insecure person, I had to work many hours, you know, because I underbed myself. <laughs> And I talked to my wife so much, maybe you like to meet her. Kathy, would you like to stand up? So in closing, if you asked me what AA has given you, I would tell you, Philip, very simply, to belong here, not necessarily standing up here, but to be able to enjoy your beautiful hotel, king-size bed, signing a check, <laughs> somebody else paying for it, <laughs> but to understand you when you speak and, and, and to feel that and I belong here, that is my greatest gift. Because without that, I couldn't enjoy anything else. Kathy and I are leaving in the morning to go to Florida for the next two weeks. We bought, I bought her a, a new Chrysler of Fifth Avenue, not Fourth, Fifth Avenue. <laughs> I told you to live like a white bat. And, and, and when I go to bed at night, when I thank God, this is what I thank God for. Finally, I'm just John the Indian and it's okay. Thank you very much.